0: This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student well-being, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to The Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast. I have the personal delight today of speaking with Dr. Chris Watkins. Dr. Watkins is Associate Professor in French Studies at Monash University, and his research is attempting to help people understand how they make sense of the world around them. He is the writer of a number of very prominent books, including Phenomenology or Deconstruction, Difficult Atheism, and his most recent publication, biblical critical theory. The current way in which uh, Dr. Watkins is working is to explore the different ways the modern West has made sense of the ideas of freedom and liberation. Dr. Watkins, Chris, thank you so much for your time. It's a personal delight to have the chance of uh, speaking with you. I've enjoyed reading some of your work and uh, it's
1: very deep, very provocative um, it's very kind of you to say that, Brendan. It's lovely to be with you here today. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: I've been interested to have my own personal thought with you about your original studies were in uh, in linguistics,
1: right? In French and in German medieval languages. Yes, and- it was a, a literature and philosophy heavy degree. Um, yes. And we, so we did German and French language, and then we looked at German and French literature and philosophy as well.
0: So that's the pathway that's led you to the the work that I know you best from, biblical critical theory, which is it is a, a a comprehensive evaluation of the the narratives informing current culture.
1: Is that a fair way to describe your work? Yes, it, you're right. It's it's a book that you you can prop a door open with. It's it's not a small one, <laughs> and the the aim really is to move from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, hitting as much of the biblical story as is possible without making the book ridiculously large, and to look at modern culture, so, you know, post-17th century Western culture, through the lens of all the different moments in the Bible story, and to see how these different parts of the biblical story help us to understand our culture. And also suggest possibly how that culture might have gone astray. Mm. I want to come back and and
0: dig a little further with you about the the propositions or the the proposals that you put in that bit of writing, your book. But maybe you can share with us a little bit how you ended up with going off to university to study medieval languages and philosophy in German and French. It doesn't necessarily seem. Uh, would have been knocking the door down for that undergraduate work?
1: (laughs) I have no idea why, Brendan. (laughs) I don't know why everybody doesn't want to do this. Um, Look, I've I've always loved big ideas and all the big questions, you know, life, the universe and everything. And so I've also had a real, always had a real soft spot, I guess, for philosophy Mm. because philosophers ask those questions. Um, And I think originally that was probably what drew me, part of what drew me to Christianity as well. Mm. That, Christians also don't shirk those big questions, don't, you know, entertain ourselves to death. But, you know, we face life and certainly the Bible faces life with all its difficult and profound questions. And so I've always seen an affinity, I guess, between philosophers and and Christians as two of the very few groups in society that are asking those big questions Mm. today. Mm. And I saw this degree as um, an opportunity to to pursue those big questions. You know, both the French and German traditions have a huge wealth of thinking about all the, the big, deep questions of life and huge literary traditions. It was just a joy, if yeah. I'm honest with you. It was an absolute yeah. joy to spend uh, four years of my life just, just reading, you know, what people from the 18th century and the 19th century thought about life, what, what they thought its meaning was, what they tried to do with their lives. And the more you do that, I suppose, the more you realize that the way that you see the life, whoever you see life, whoever you are, is not obvious. Like not everybody has always looked at the world the way that I do. People have seen things very, very differently. And it really helps you to reflect on your own position and to, you know, to question yourself, I suppose. Mm.
0: Were Were you hardwired that way, Chris? Was that something that you were aware of while you're at school that you had this draw to big ideas
1: and big stories um I, I don't think i put it as strongly as being hardwired you know life is complicated isn't it and where how we get to where we end up i think is is always much more complex than simply you know i always wanted to do this and i ended up doing it but i i have always been drawn to to big questions um you know the the deepest ways of thinking about life you know what is what is the meaning of life? I suppose is is the deepest Mm. you get. So yeah, I've always enjoyed thinking about that sort of thing.
0: Were there any seminal experiences or things that were pivotal in your development, your childhood, your adolescence that helped open that world for you, or at least
1: hold it as a possibility for you to explore? (laughs) That's a really interesting question. I've never thought about that. Um, do you know, I don't know, Brenda. There, there, hmm. There's no one sort of moment where, you know, the universe opened up to me and I sort of looked into the abyss and thought, you know, and there's nothing nothing like that. Um, no, I think I, I I may have to disappoint you by saying I've just always been interested in it, but hmm. there's no sort of one trigger moment that that suddenly sent everything off.
0: Not a disappointment in any, in any stretch of imagination, but it's it's a, a reflection or an interesting reflection as to how you're making decisions about, what electives to take at high school you're making decisions about where to next and the options that lie before you partly i guess because you you were growing up in a in an environment in a culture where it was possible for you to entertain those those uh nourishing those intellectually nourishing stimulating
1: uh, options absolutely yeah no i i was fortunate to be able to choose what i did so in in england where i did my um my education, you choose three subjects to focus on uh, for A-level when you're 16. And um, I could have chosen sciences. I loved science. Mm. Um, I was fascinated by the physical world. Um, But you you sort of had to focus one way or another. And so I did French, German, and English literature. Um, Yeah, as I say, I could have gone a different way. And I think I'd have really enjoyed going a different way. I Mm. love physics and maths and, and chemistry. Um, but I, I chose languages and, you know, I'm I'm glad that by God's grace, um, I've been able to serve and help people by going that way.
0: Were there any particular obstacles that you needed to meet, face challenge, or was there warm encouragement from the people around you to stretch your wings, plot your course?
1: I, I've been really fortunate, Brendan, I think, in that I haven't faced any huge challenges my my parents were incredibly supportive all the way through school and university um i was able to go through university without needing to work to earn money which i recognize is is a huge privilege and and something that most people are just physically not able to do so i consider myself um to to have been very fortunate uh, in the way that i've been able to to pursue the degree that I did without having to fight against anyone uh, or anything.
0: You, you mentioned already that faith is a part of your the way you see the world, the way you understand the the basics of reality. Has that always been the case? Were you surrounded by faith as a as a child? Did you get confronted with the the claims of truth of
1: Christianity? Um, Safe to say no. I, I had a bit of an inoculation against faith as a child. So I, I grew up as um, a happy atheist, you know, no God-shaped hole, no existential sort of angst, no desire for transcendence, nothing of that. i just just really happy, to be honest, uh, with the life that I had. Didn't have a space for God, didn't really feel the need for God. Um, I did go to Sunday school once when I was a child. Um, and it was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. I was quite a, a shy child, and I was just thrown into this room with all these people who knew what they were doing, and we were colouring in pictures of something I didn't understand, and we were told a story I didn't understand, and oh, I hated it. It was it was so stressful. Um, And then next week, I I wouldn't even go back into the room. I got my mum to take back the library book that I borrowed. So that was my experience of church as a child. And then I came back to God when I was about 15. So we went with school on a trip to the battlefield to the First World War. And it's very hard to visit those battlefields, you know, with rows and rows and rows of little white crosses as far as the eye can see, without thinking about death. And Mm. where all those people are now and whether their sacrifice had any meaning or whether indeed Mm. you can use words like sacrifice or whether it's just, you know, nature taking its it's, course is is there any, anything beyond stuff happening, you know, in something like a world war? And so I got thinking and a friend who was on the trip invited me to come to church with her and um, I went mainly because she was a friend and you know you're young and you try different things out so there wasn't any particular attraction to to christianity at that point but i went along and i think about a year later it may have been two years i don't remember i got to the point where i couldn't walk away from christianity but i didn't believe it yet Mm -hmm. um i think the reason i couldn't walk away was that i saw the way that the christians loved each other Mm -hmm. i don't think i'd have used that word at the time the way they related Mm -hmm. to each other in the church which was just Extraordinary. I'd never seen anything like it outside of family setting. Like mm. they really loved each other. And yet they had, a lot of them, very little in common with each other. There was just a, a, an intoxicating quality of relationship about them. And then again, the the Jesus that they kept talking about from the Bible was just perplexing. Mm. Um, you know, in the sense that he would say some very profoundly wise and sensible things. And then, you know, on the next page, he suddenly claimed to be God. Mm. Um, And, you know, there there are wise people. Mm. Yeah. And there are people who claim to be God. (laughs) They're they're not the same people. The people who claim to be God, you know, are in institutions and the people who are wise are wise enough to know not to claim to be God. And so I didn't, I couldn't put him in a box. I I didn't, I couldn't Mm. work him out. Um, And then a little while later, I think, I realised on the first Christian summer camp that I went on that that I was a Christian. I, mm-hmm. I heard the Bible taught, and I thought, "Yeah, this is this is the way things are," mm. and it is a very exciting way for things to be, and I am very excited by it. So I don't know the moment that I became a Christian, but I know the the first time that I realised that I certainly was.
0: I think that's a, a really lovely dual account of your encounter with with truth, in its it's it's a reality form but also the promise of Christ by you'll know they are Christians by my love you know but that experiential component that was part of your your being found by God or coming to God is lovely you you made a an interesting statement a little bit earlier in our conversation that it, it was the intellectual rigor or the veracity the truthfulness of of claims and and christianity's engagement with those big questions that was part of part of you being drawn to and then finally convinced by that that would not necessarily be a christianity that a lot of people would identify one of the critiques of christianity has been that it is about blind faith that it's been about simple notions that don't stand up intellectually where where do you what answer do you find for those people that have that
1: objection? Um, look, I'm sure that there are flavours of Christianity where that's the case. I, I'm just, again, I, I, I suppose the word is fortunate, never to have been sort of brought up in that sort of Christianity. So the, the first Christianity I had contact with um, when I was still, you know, asking questions and not sure where I stood was a Christianity that was asking questions at a much deeper level than anything else that I'd ever encountered mm. in life and much deeper than, than my, my friends. Um, and that was sort of opening the Bible and reading it very carefully and taking it seriously and trying to, to work through how the Bible could be brought to bear on those questions. So mm. there was, there was always, I suppose, a high bar from that point of view. And then mm. when I went up to university, the, the church that I went to, um, you know, being influenced by by figures like John Stott and C.S. Lewis, who thought extremely profoundly about the modern world from a position of of trying to take the Bible seriously and and bring it to bear on the world, and so that's always the the Christian air I'd breathed, I suppose. Mm. Um, and I, I'm aware, you know, because people have asked the question that you just asked to me before that there are types of Christianity that try to shut down thinking. Mm. Um, But it seems to me that that's neither uh, very helpful. No, it's really what the Bible does. You know, you Mm. don't see Jesus or Paul telling people to stop thinking. You know, Jesus tells provocative parables precisely with the purpose of making people think
0: Mm. and
1: making people slightly unsure of where they stand so that they ask deeper questions.
0: Yeah, I I get what you're saying, and uh, I I couldn't help but, think when you were sharing your own story chris of the experience of cs lewis who who not i think he described himself as a reluctant convert i don't know that you would use that same phrase but the the idea that there is for, for wherever for whatever uh, capacity you have to think christianity holds an answer there, there is when jesus says i am the, the way, the truth, and the life. That will be true at whatever level of engagement you can manage.
1: And and I think, yes, I I completely agree, Brendan. And I think that the same phrase, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, also primes you to think that the response that Christianity gives you is not going to be a simple one. It's not yes. these three points are the way, the truth, and the life. You know, yes. this simple sentence is the way, the truth, and the life. that there's nothing more complex than people, yeah. you know? And if yeah. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, there, there's a, in a sense, there's a there's a beautiful simplicity to that because all God's promises are yes in him. Everything goes through him. It's, there, there's a simplicity, but it's not simplistic um, because the richness of the response that Christ gives to these deep questions of life, um, I think is more complex and more multidimensional than you could ever get with any, sort of abstract philosophical answer to them simply Amen. because people are more rich and, yes. and diverse and sort of multi-level than than any abstract idea.
0: I found it a personal delight when uh, when I was reading your opening chapters and the proposition that personhood, personness, is the basic essence of reality because that is god god is person and it frames it frames everything and that complexity of personality does permeate truth and allows things to be held in in creative tension that are that are not completely discrete or able to be demarcated it was it's a
1: wonderful insight and, and i think it's it's a balm as well isn't it you know there, there are very few people in society today who don't want to care for people mm. um and you know the the weakest and most vulnerable among us that you know the people the bible would call the widows and the orphans and there are very few people who don't want to say that people have dignity all people have dignity regardless of how much money they earn or regardless of how well they play sport or whatever mm. um and the, the idea that the deepest reality in the universe is not a, a force or an impersonal equation or whatever, but is actually mm. personal. Mm. It's just one of the biblical foundations. There are others mm. for saying that regardless of what I think, people actually do have dignity. So if everybody in the world said people are worthless, on Christianity they would still have dignity. It doesn't matter what we think. There's something outside us that mm. ascribes dignity to people. Mm. That's so precious.
0: It is indeed. I'm also struck, Chris, as you relay your own experience of the the imminence of grace, the fact that you were led. I mean, you had this experience of going and seeing those fields of white crosses and being confronted with the futility of life and the the scale of of loss and the questions about meaning. There, were, there would be other people, other hearts, other minds that would see that and would be confronted with the anguish of it and the futility and the nihilistic, be persuaded that way, you you were led the other way. You were led to find
1: something bigger than that. It's interesting, isn't it? I wonder. I wonder if those two reactions are quite as opposite as we might think though. Good. Because in order to... Feel the weight of the nihilism there's got to be a sense that nihilism's not just normal yeah Yeah, that's good you know that it's like pascal's point that you can only be wretched if you ought to be something more than you are like i think his example is a rat is not wretched when it scrapes around in the rubbish looking for something to eat but uh, and and i think again pascal's example is but a queen would be wretched if Mm. she was scraping around in the rubbish looking for something Mm. to eat because a A queen ought to be Mm. grander than that. And so I don't think you can be hit by nihilism without a latent sense of there should be something better or bigger Mm. or more meaningful than this. Mm. And so I think almost you could say, you know, being confronted with the nihilism of the universe, you're already halfway to to grasping onto some greater meaning. I think it's the person who would look at the, Crosses of the First World War and see the millions of people who died and think, yeah, whatever, just more mm. stuff." Then that, mm. that's a lot further away from faith than someone who would just be struck by the the meaninglessness of it all.
0: Which is some of the argument, isn't it? There's there's quite a um, a surge of reflection. I want to ask you a little later on about the nature of Western civilization and what the West holds. There's, there's been a number of commentators who have identified that those values, the very valuing of human life as something that should not be scattered as a sea of white crosses on a field, is intrinsically Christian in its
1: in its information. Um, yes. Yes, they have. I think you need to be careful about that. So the people like Tom Holland in Dominion and Glenn Scrivener in The Air We Breathe have have made this Argument that the the values that we recognise as universal human values today—human dignity, equality, freedom—actually sunk their roots in a particular cultural compost, if you like, which oh. was the the cultural compost that that was full of of the Bible, of um, Jewish and Christian thought. Um, and I think just historically speaking, it's very hard to to refute that it it, it does. It is de facto the case that those societies that have valued human dignity and the and the value of intrinsic value of human life most and equality and freedom so forth happen to have been those cultures where, um, uh, where Christianity has has helped to shape those cultures. But I think, I think what you don't want to do is suggest that you can't value human life without yes. that Christian influence, because I think the the Bible itself would say, you know that. Um, for example, that verse in Ecclesiastes: God has put eternity in in people's hearts. Um, God has given us a, a a sense. You know, it's it's a, as Romans one says: it's not a sense that's beautifully pristine and shining in us, but nevertheless, we do have a sense mm-hmm. of um, how God has made the world. You know, as, mm-hmm. as Romans one says: His eternal power and divine nature. And so, you wouldn't want to suggest that there's no inkling as to the, the value of human life without a specific explicit teaching of Christianity. And so I think you, what I'm saying is don't push that argument too far.
0: Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying there. That's that's very good, setting up a straw man to to, to critique a, a non-Christian perspective or to defend the Bible yeah. and its place. Yeah. And, and neither would you want to diminish the, the individual moment of personal revelation that comes and say, oh, my response to that was simply cultural in its formation and not to recognize that the spirit of God in grace was able to do something
1: specific, individual. That's right. It's it's the idea, the theological idea um, that I think does reflect something that the Bible is talking about, although the Bible doesn't use this language, of of common grace. Mm. Um, God gives grace to everybody. Uh, None of us are quite as Evil as we would be if we were just left to our own devices, regardless of whether we're Christians or not, and that is because God God is kind to us and and holds back um, our destructive impulses. Yeah, and I think we need we need to let common grace have its say in in those debates about values.
0: Very good. Before I do dig in specifically to some of the the things in your book, I, do you carry a sense, Chris, of this is your vocation that God has shaped you and Crafted you and given capacities to wrestle with big ideas and express them with power and persuasion, and that's his
1: his commission for you. Um, I I don't think I'd use that language. So I I enjoy it. It, it seems that when I do it, people get helped and served, and so that's fantastic. Um, but I think it's always dangerous to second guess. God's plans you know so for example if if my wife were to be injured in a horrific car crash today and to need my full-time care that would become my vocation yeah that's that's me from that point yeah. on I'm all in um and so if I hold on to an idea of the one thing that I know that God has called me to yeah, is to write good. these books and then something happens yeah. like my, my, my wife becomes in need of full-time care where does that leave me
0: yes that's and, and I
1: think I've I've presumed upon knowing more about God's will than I actually do yes, in a case like that. So I, I enjoy it. it. It appears that that what I do is useful and I will keep on doing it as long as God puts me in a place where I'm able to do. And if he changes that, then we'll reassess.
0: That's a very good caution, not to absolutize the current way in which God might be using you or opening opportunities for you and, and to enshrine that as as the the be all and end endures, so you're living more in the notion of of the one Peter four ten. Whoever speaks, let him speak. Whoever serves, it, it's it's recognizing that God remains providentially sovereign.
1: That's right. God God sees the end from the beginning, uh, and I don't. Mm. So it's it's His job to mm. to work out what what my vocation is at any point, and and I'll try my best to to discern it and follow along. Be faithful. That's great. Well, I, I wanted to start by
0: a particular engagement about uh, your biblical critical theory treaty by asking the question about um, most people would know or be familiar with critical theory in something that maybe wasn't obviously aligned to Christian thinking. Critical race theory is the flavour of the day or part of common parlance right now and it's not necessarily seen in a positive light. So maybe you can help unpack what is critical theory and and how is it appropriately applied to something like
1: the Bible? Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, I, I guess the question of whether or not it's seen in a positive light is very much a political yeah, question. Yeah, where, where you it? stand, that's, that's very true. That's yes. part of the problem. It's become so politicised and so polarised, this debate, around critical theory, that it's very hard to to sort of see the wood for the trees anymore. Um, look, my my argument in the book um is really that both historically and logically, Christian faith provides the the best basis for doing what we call critical theory. Um and let me just walk through why I think that's the case, because that might sound strange to to people who've only come across critical theory as this sort of thing on the news that pops up and people either love or hate. And then um, uh, it sounds quite provocative to say that that is fundamentally Christian. So let, I I owe your listeners an explanation of Mm. that. Um, So first of all, historically, just look back to the different ancient civilizations and Think about which of them entertained a critique of power within society. You know, so ancient Babylon, ancient Assyria, you you don't find the emperors and kings willingly entertaining people who say you're making bad choices. Mm -hmm. Um, Those people get killed in Babylon and Assyria. And yet in the Hebrew nation, we find this very particular institution, which is the institution Mm -hmm. of the prophet now they're not officially sanctioned there's no school of prophets you don't have to go to prophet university to become a prophet um some prophets are shepherds some seem to work in the royal courts so they're, they're everybody in society seems to be eligible to be a prophet and there's only one instance of it being passed on in a line of succession from elijah to elisha i think so, so they, it's really anarchic this institution of prophecy and one of the things that the prophet does is they pronounce God's judgment upon the political leadership of the nation. So, you know, the other nations are are judged, absolutely, but a lot of the invective goes towards the kings of Israel and Judah. And yet there's a place in Hebrew society for this institution. Now, prophets aren't always liked. Once in a while, they're killed. But nevertheless, they're recognized as, if you like, a legit part of society uh, in ancient Israel. And that's just odd. Like the the critique of that sort should be tolerated is is Mm. not usual in the ancient world. Um, And then you go into the New Testament period and and you see, you know, just more of it. It just gets, the volume gets turned up. You know, Jesus rips into the Pharisees, the leaders, the, the, the authority, religious authority figures of his day, like he rips into nobody else. And so there's this tradition of critique within the Bible. Um, And then you get into the early centuries of the Christian tradition and you see it carrying on. So I'm thinking particularly of Augustine's amazing book, The City of God. Um, uh, Charles Matthews is an Augustine scholar. Uh, I think he's based at the University of Virginia. Very respected um, sort of world authority on Augustine. And one thing that he said in one of his books really struck me. He said that the city of God is the first example that he's aware of in the Western tradition of taking a whole culture, which which Augustine does with Rome, not just a little bit of it, but the whole of a culture, and subjecting it to a systematic critique from a position outside of it, which which of course for Augustine is is a, a biblical standpoint. Um, and to the extent that that is true, the city of God is the origin of the enterprise of systematic cultural critique in the West. Um, So historically speaking, when we talk about critiquing society, we're drawing necessarily upon a a heritage that that is Christian. But I think there's also a stronger argument to make, which is that Christianity provides you with the sort of basis you need to make cultural critique meaningful in the sense that in order to say the way things are in society at the moment is not right, mm. things need changing, and everybody says that, don't they? No, nobody sort of goes on Twitter and says, "Every say, generation, really good, yep. actually, yep. you know, just <laughs> let's just carry on." Um, everybody thinks things are bad and need changing in one way or another. In order to do that, you've got to have somewhere to stand outside the status quo from which to judge the status quo. If if mm-hmm. what there is is all there is, why is it not okay? Like it's just mm-hmm. everything. It is just it is what it is like how could you judge it on the basis of anything other than itself because there is Mm. nothing and christianity of course provides you with that place to stand because we know that the way things are now is neither the way that they were originally intended to be you know genesis one is not genesis three something catastrophic happened after the original um creation uh, to to stuff things up, basically. And we know that how things are now is not how they're going to be. Um, that, you know, Colossians 2, I think it is Ephesians 1, God will gather everything under Christ. Everything will be reconciled to him. And that right at the end of Revelation, of course, there's the the final judgment where nobody will get away with anything that they thought they'd got away with during this life and so that the christian can say the way things are now is not how they should be mm. and that's not just my feelings not just that it makes me feel bad not just that it sets off certain chemicals in my brain uh, but objectively regardless of what i feel the way things are now is not as they should be mm. and that gives you a, a very powerful foundation for cultural critique because it's not just i don't like this and then someone else comes along and said well actually i quite like it and then where do you go from there The only thing you can do there is who can shout loudest and put most money behind their position and eventually, you know, Mm. produce most firepower in order to to silence the opposition. That's that's not a very healthy society. And so there's a sense that pops up in secular cultural theory once in a while that you do need this sort of place to stand. Um, And one of the clearest places that it pops up is towards the end of a book called... um, Minima Moralia by the um Frankfurt school critical theorist, a guy called uh Theodore Adorno. And it, and he he's talking about cu- the enterprise of cultural critique towards the end of that book. And he says, look, what we need is a standpoint of redemption. Now he's mm. not a Christian, like he he holds no brief for Christianity whatsoever. And he's not using that argument, to be fair to him, to say we all need to become Christians. He 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 has a way of thinking you can get that standpoint of redemption. Without becoming um, a theist or, or, or a Christian, but nevertheless, the fact that that's the language he reaches for to say this is what we need to legitimate the enterprise of cultural critique, I just think is really interesting. It is, um, isn't and it? It, it shows you that logically, if you don't have somewhere to stand that's different to the status quo, when push comes to shove, all you can really do is say, "I don't like this," yes. and hope that enough people agree with you. Yes.
0: Which, which makes makes sense of I've heard you talk in other contexts around the the value, the inherent value of there being the the fact of sin, mm-hmm. that sin is not just evil manifest; it is a failing to achieve the ideal, the good, and that notion of we're not simply trying to eliminate the things that we don't like or that we don't approve of. There is there is a teleology, there's a purpose that with, we're striving for. And every age, despite their best intentions,
1: will fall short. Hmm. I think that's absolutely right. Look, if you don't have a, a positive vision to offer, then you know just take your place alongside the, all the other armchair critics that are pointing oh. their finger at things in society. But oh. the, the deliciousness of the Bible is that it, it doesn't just sit there and wag its finger. Uh, it does you know i suppose iconically in in the book of revelation paints this just this beautiful this meltingly beautiful picture of the new jerusalem mm. there's a different way that society can be done with god at its center um and and just the, the picture of of beauty and flourishing and joy and harmony that there is there um i i think it is is as important in terms of cultural engagement, as being able to say, you know, the way things are now is not the way that they should be. Because if that's all you can say, then where do you go from there? Like, yeah. so what? What are we going to do about that? Yeah. We're just going to sort of fold our arms and, and curl our lip and sneer? Well, that's that's hardly going to get any – that's hardly going to help anyone. Yeah. So you, you've got to have the positive vision.
0: Which leads to the notion that um, you, you describe or unpack in a way that uh, there's the phrase – out-narrate that there is this meta-narrative, this big story that is a, a better explanatory tool for what is than, than alternatives. And it, it isn't just a competitor to, it embraces all that that story tells and more. Is that sort of how you see Christianity and, and the proposals in the Bible?
1: I think so. Um, I think certainly that's how Augustine sees things in the City of God. And it, it's it. When you get to big views of the world that encompass everything, you, you can't just say there's no objective place to stand to say this one's right and that one's wrong because mm. they all explain everything. Mm. <laughs> so what are you going to do? <laughs> Pardon me. And one way of trying to to grapple with that is to to look at the stories they have for explaining each other. And so there are lots of secular yeah. stories out there that will try to explain christianity better than christians can explain it themselves is the claim you know so psychoanalysis will say yes well you think there's a god but let me tell you what's really going on yes actually you're projecting a father figure you know it, it's more complex than that but essentially you know it's your you need some sort of transcendent idea of the father and so you've invented this idea called god and you know that the, the the philosophy of Darwinism would would have its own explanation for Christianity, how it's um, evolutionarily advantageous and so forth. And so they all try to explain Christianity as part of their own story. They they try to out-narrate Christianity. Um, But of course, Christianity does that as well. It doesn't just sort of sit there in the corner waiting to be out-narrated. It explains why people would be desperate for there to be no God, and would go to great lengths to invent stories that paint God out of the picture, and so forth. And so, you you look at uh, these stories alongside each other and look at how they explain each other, and and look at the, I guess the the explanatory power that they have in relation to to the way that that we see the world. Um, mm. And so, a, a lot of these stories will either go hard on humans being basically nice and benevolent and you know we just got to get education right and then people will be free to be themselves and and we if if only we can you know mix mix the formula correctly in society then everything will be wonderful and other stories go really hard on on human depravity and evil um, and say you're never gonna get people to to be nice to each other you've just got to scare them into submission and it's it's uh, unless there's enough fear in society you're going to get Anarchy um and and there's a historical genealogy for each of those positions um you can see how they sort of develop but the the wonderful thing about the Bible is that it it goes it's sort of more pessimistic than the deepest pessimist and also more, wild idly optimistic than than the greatest idealist you know so people will say you know, they, you know the pessimists or the cynics will say you know people are fundamentally flawed um and the bible will come along and says you've got no idea how bad we are mm-hmm. um you know we are uh unable to change our hearts our hearts deceive us we are powerless before our own depravity um and there, there aren't many people painting such a bleak picture even among you know the the Hobbesians who say that there's a war of all against all unless we're we're too scared to to do what we really want to do. Uh, and then the Bible comes along and, and sort of has a look at these idealists who are saying, you know, we've just got to get education right and then society's going to be wonderful. And and the Bible says well, that's a very small vision. Let me let me show you a reality where we get new hearts, where there's no longer any mourning or crying yeah. or pain. And um, because the old order of things has, has passed away. Let me show you a perfect society that's not just pie in the sky, but is actually is actually on its way. And it, it makes the greatest secular idealism, you know, look like a, a quick sketch on the back of a napkin. Um, and the, the amazing thing about the Bible is it, it does both of these and they're not in conflict with each other. It's not that you've got half cynicism or pessimism and half idealism. You know, that Genesis 1 and Genesis 3, both of them, unload both barrels yeah christian view of the world and so when people do terribly wicked things you know the christian grieves and weeps but she's not shocked yes but that doesn't challenge our view of the world and when people do the most gloriously wonderful self-sacrificial things that the christian rejoices and is happy but again that doesn't rock our world because that's right there in the bible and so the christian the Christian can play this whole keyboard of the human experience in a way that I think it's really hard for, for secular philosophies to, to wrap their head around because they either go mainly on the people are fundamentally good line or mainly on the people are fundamentally stuffed up line.
0: I think it was Chesterton that argued this line, wasn't it, that we, we need the full expression of of, of um, pessimism but the full expression on high volume and to its max, both of them operating at
1: full blast, that's what Christianity holds. Yeah, and and I think that's what we see on the news, isn't it? Mm. You know, people are pretty crummy a lot of the time and people, you know, can torture babies. That Mm. happens. Um, People can kill each other. And if our view of the world can't cope with that, then we've got a problem. And yet people can you know, go into war zones to rescue people and lose their lives when these people, you know, they're, they're not their family, they're, they're not the same ethnic group, there's no, you know, people are capable of, of of the most wonderful acts as well. And so it just, it resonates, it just fits with what we see around us, what we read in the paper, what we see online. Chris, I wonder whether
0: you've done reflecting, I, I certainly have asked the question for people like yourselves that that are able to unpack apparently simultaneously a different view of culture and a different view of scripture which is which is the one that's informing the other are you bringing a theological view to your sociology or your philosophy or a philosophical view to your theology or is it not important to make that distinction
1: um i i think it's a really complex question and I'm just trying to think it through in terms of Augustine in the city of God. Look, I, there are different building blocks that I think you need to get in place to, to have a, an adequate answer to that question. Let's, let's, let's just try and throw a, a few of them in the wall. I think, first of all, none of us come to the Bible as a blank slate. Mm. Uh, so we, we've all been catechized into a particular cultural view of the world and that catechesis has been constant and often very aggressive. So everything that we uh, are are taught as babies and then children is is bringing us into a particular view of the world that, that our parents largely hold. Everything that we see online, all the adverts that we see as we walk around the city, wherever we live, all the interactions that we have with other people are all shaping and forming us. And for those of us who live in Australia and, and similar countries, they're shaping us into a, a really quite particular and in many ways peculiar western Mm. view of the world and teaching us to value particular things that not all cultures have always valued and to shun and decry other things that not all cultures have shunned and decried and so we, we all start from somewhere none of us come to the bible completely clean culturally and so we're necessarily going to to read some of our cultural assumptions into the way that we interpret the bible now the question is not do we start from there? The question is, what do we do with that? Um, And I think that there are particular ways in relation to reading the Bible that that needn't mean that you end up with some sort of wishy-washy relativism where you know, the Bible just means nothing in itself and everybody just brings their own ideas to it and nobody ever takes anything away from it. Um, I think first of all, that's not the way we read any other book. Like, you wouldn't say that about Shakespeare. You'd say that you're your cultural lenses filter your view of Shakespeare to a certain extent, um, but I don't think anyone would say the text itself means nothing at all and it's only what you bring to it that you take away from it. So the the sort of entry level to this is just treat the Bible like you would treat any other text and don't, don't deny to the Bible the courtesy that you would give to any other text or to any other person speaking to you you know, as I'm speaking to you now, you're not saying, well, you know, your words could mean anything at all. Mm. That's, that's not very nice to me. And I'm not assuming the same of you either. And so you're just, just to extend the Bible that same courtesy. And I think what the Bible has going for it though, um, in contradistinction to to other books is two things. First of all, that it is itself multicultural, if you like, Um, that it's written over a period of centuries in different languages within and two different cultures. So there's there's the culture of uh, a, a nation being uh, slaves in Egypt, moving out of slaves to a self-governing setup uh, in the promised land and then later on in exile in a very different cultural context and then under Roman occupation in the New Testament. And so the Bible is not monocultural. Uh, and if if you believe that the problem is being locked into a particular cultural outlook, well, then the Bible doesn't have that problem almost uniquely mm-hmm. among books because it wasn't written within one generation in one cultural context the the other factor i think that um that gives us great hope reading the bible that we're not just looking at a mirror and seeing our own ideas reflected back to us is is the the promise of god's holy spirit mm-hmm. uh, uh to to help believers to interpret the scriptures. Now, this is not a get out of jail free card. It's not, well, I'm a believer. Therefore, everything I think about the Bible is necessarily going to be true because I've got the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's the way the New Testament conditions us to think about reading the Bible. But nevertheless, uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit does uh, guide the first apostles into all truth and, you know, they're able to set it down. Uh, And then when we read, we are, uh, if, if we read seeking to, to obey Uh, Christ and seeking to follow him. We do have the Holy Spirit. Um, And so I think for those two main reasons, almost the Bible more than any other book gives us hope that we're not just in an echo chamber of our own ideas when we read it.
0: In in a similar way, I'm conscious we have spoke earlier about some of the the writers that uh, Tom Holland and those sorts of folks who have identified the, the biblical basis of Western society that needs to be recognised and preserved and and um, respected, at least if, if not re-established. Then there's writers like Carl Truman in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self who have tracked those biblical principles to enable the development of a culture that has overturned Christianity, you know, introduced the postmodern era. Where do you, where, do, how do you understand those points of argument that Christianity and, and the biblical basis for culture was to be valued, and the argument that it actually enabled the demise of Christendom?
1: I guess it goes back to the answer from a little while ago, which is that the Bible expects human beings both to be capable of of great good and and great evil, and, and it expects human beings not to be comfortable with the idea of there being a personal God who makes demands of us and makes promises that he wants us to trust. Um, and if that is the case, as the Bible suggests that it is, then it would be no surprise mm. if we take biblical truths and try and wriggle out of them or twist them against the Bible and try and draw out of them. Arguments that seem to um, defeat the faith—you oh. you sort of—it would be odd if that didn't happen. <laughs> if we are, as the Bible says that we are, and so you know the trajectory that that Truman charts in in that book, and that there are other possible ways of telling that story as well. It's sort of, well, yeah, that's the sort of people that we are, isn't it? Yeah, you know, if if the Bible is correct, that's sort of the way you'd expect it to play out.
0: So, in a similar way as the the physicists will say, what sort of universe would we expect if these principles were in play? That's the world we've ended up with. You're arguing the same thing with our with our humanity, with our relationships, and our culture. But
1: it, Look, it seems to fit. Um, yeah, it, it it would be hard to think that we were the sort of people the Bible says we are, and then. sort of have some christian ideas and then everybody suddenly oh this is so brilliant let's just hang on to these and never sort of move away from them and Mm -hmm. you know each generation will say yes our fathers and grandfathers had it perfectly Mm -hmm. um and you know we don't want to change a thing that's just not it's not how we roll is it you know Mm -hmm. every generation wants to mark itself out from the generation of its parents and then they've been really interesting um Sort of literary studies of this. There, there's a, a lovely book called The Anxiety of Influence, which is, you know, basically every every generation wants to show that its previous yeah, generation it's did, Mark. Yeah. didn't have it right, and yeah, you know, we we you got to listen to us. You know, nobody makes a reputation, do they, in literary studies or elsewhere, by saying status quo. Yeah, a thing, things are just fine. Let's let's just let's just keep them as they are, and and so you know, given that that is who we seem to be and who we seem generation after generation to prove ourselves to be, um, and, and that the Bible predisposes us to expect, you know, that sort of thing, making a name for ourselves in the language of the Tower of Babel. That's, Babel. The, mm. that's the sort of people we are. Um, then, yeah, that's, you know, the the story that Truman tells is, is sort of how it's going to go.
0: So rather than some of those works that uh, are, um, are nostalgic about Christendom and the the power of Western civilization, rooted in Judeo-Christian values, and almost a harkening back to those those times, or at least that that way of viewing culture. Are you optimistic? Is is it something that you you aspire to for the future of our community, our world, our our, our
1: generation? Um. But let me just say a quick word about the nostalgia first. I think that that nostalgia reflex is more complex than we often give it credit for. So I don't think people actually want to go back. Mm. Um, we, we we selectively understand certain parts of the past through the lens of the present um, and project onto the past, I think, a, a weight that, that the actual past is not able to bear. And so I, I think there's a lot more to nostalgia than simply wanted to turn the clock back. Mm. Um, And it's, it's a a bit of a simplistic idea um, that, that, that all, all that we need to do is go back to a previous point. There there was no golden age. Mm. And, and I think, again, the Bible predisposes us to expect that this side of Genesis three, there's no, you know, high point that if we just get back to there, then it's all going to be great. That's not, the shape of the biblical story um so is is there hope well yes there's a christian sort of hope which is um neither the armchair cynicism of you know all politicians are corrupt and you know if you're on the left capitalism is just draining society of all its morality or if you're on the right you know whatever it is these days the woke agenda is destroying that so there's not there's not that cynicism but neither is the the sort of wing and a prayer hail mary sort of hope that you sometimes get you know if we could all just love each other and um these sort of john lennon imagine type hope um but it, it's sort of Sounds okay, but how on earth? Would he, like, that's not what people are like. You know, that's never been what people are like. So why do we expect that people are suddenly going to fundamentally change and society is going to be wonderful? But the sort of hope that you get in Christianity is a hope that can look the bleakness of reality in the face. It can look those rows of white crosses in the First World War in the face. And it doesn't have to pretend they're not there. Mm. Um And it can, it can weep at that. And yet in the midst of that, it can hold out a concrete, visceral hope for a fundamental change. Mm -hmm. Um, the inbreaking of which we see already. Um, you know, so the, when Christianity is, is, is working along a biblical pattern, I think we see something of the hope. Being manifest. Um, so, yeah. for example, the Great Awakening in in the UK back in the day when you know, under Whitfield and Wesley, crime rates dropped, alcoholism dropped. Um, you, you, and I'm I'm not suggesting that Christianity is always an unmitigatedly beneficial force in society. Christians in the name of Christ have also done a lot of evil. And you know, John Dixon's book "Bullies and Saints" I think is really really helpful on, on facing that and, and coming to terms with that as Christians, So don't, don't anybody hear me saying, you know, Christians are always wonderful and they always do wonderful things. Isn't it great? Um, nevertheless, there are, there is historical evidence to show that Christianity can benefit, does benefit. Um, yes society and and that from a christian point of view is just the first fruits it's just the 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 shadows the incoming sort of to to switch metaphor from shadow the the little rays of light before the glorious sunrise and so so there's there's a there's a hope that's a here and now hope it's not just pie in the sky when you die you know christianity done properly benefits society
0: yes
1: Um, and we can look in the past at examples of that um, and you know, if people love each other and build community, and help each other, and use their their money and their their time to 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 support each other, that's good for society. Um, and yet, that's not the opening hope. It's not just a let's try and make things a tiny bit better type hope. Yes. Which the more you think about it, and the more you dwell with that sort of hope, is actually. Sort of a council of despair. Is that is that is that all we can do? Mm. Um, but it is it is a, a, a an unstoppable juggernaut of hope, also coming. Mm. Um, you know, when we will get new hearts and mm. every tear will be wiped away uh, from uh, from our eyes and so forth. And and it's it's the combination, I think, of those two that that's the distinctive of the Christian hope. It's not just let's sit tight and wait for the apocalypse, um, but it's not let's just do a tiny bit now because that's all we're ever going to achieve either.
0: Yeah. That, and that's a beautiful circle back to the experience you had as a, as a teenager, where you encountered the profoundities of, of eternity, but you experienced a community that were committed to one another and were making life in the here and now something quintessentially better in, in their love with one another. Those two parts of Christianity that full of grace, full of truth that we're called to live out the full measure of the statue of christ chris dr watkins it's been an absolute joy to spend some time with you um, i thoroughly appreciate the way god has used you to to shine some of his light into the areas of the world in which we occupy uh, sociologically and we'll continue to pray that he strengthens you for that i, I look forward to hearing a bit more about emancipation and freedom for for freedom's sake you made us free. It'd be great to hear some of your thoughts on that. But for today, thank you for your gracious presence.
1: It's been an absolute joy, Ben, and thank you so much for your, your wonderful questions.